again, I don't mean just by compensating them well, but, you know, again, creating clarity and creating a safe space for them to be, to grow, to make mistakes and get better. But, you know, hopefully learn from those very quickly. That, that's a part of it. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathine, and every other week I'll be sitting down with people who work in everything from community organizing to philanthropy to social entrepreneurship to learn how they got their start, get their hot takes on social change careers, and get their advice on how our listeners can go and build long-term careers working on issues that they care about. This week, I am really excited to sit down with Stanford Thompson. He is a musician and educator who serves as the founder and executive director of Play on Philly and founding board chairman of El Sistema USA and the National Instrumentalist Mentoring and Advancement Network. Recognized as a TED Fellow, Stanford believes that music is a powerful tool for positive personal and community change. He serves on the faculty of the Global Leaders Program and regularly presents for major arts and business conferences, institutions, and stakeholders about leadership, entrepreneurship, and social justice. As a principal of Goldsmith Strategies, he has guided the strategic development of dozens of organizations across the U.S. while collaborating with local and national initiatives to develop new strategies and programs that provide equitable access to the arts. As a professional trumpeter, Stanford has performed as a soloist and a member of major orchestras around the world and continues to perform throughout the Philadelphia region. He's a native of Atlanta, Georgia, a graduate of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's Talent Development Program, and holds degrees from the Curtis Institute of Music and the New England Conservatory's Sistema Fellows Program. Well, Stanford, thank you so much for taking the time to be here this morning. I really appreciate you taking a, a Thursday early morning, you know, podcast chat with me. Oh, sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Yeah. So I guess I'd love to start sort of with the basics. How did you first come to play music? How did that world, how did you get introduced to that world? So I grew up in a musical family. Uh, my parents are both professional musicians and now retired music educators. And all eight of us had to play something at some point. I'm number seven out of eight, the youngest boy. And, you know, I, I really wanted to find an instrument where I could actually be heard. So that's what was a big part of me being attracted to learning to play the trumpet. And I started that when I was eight years old. For probably the first year and a half, my father taught me until I started taking lessons at Georgia State University and just kind of being around some really good mentors, playing in really good youth programs, spending my summers at the Interlochen Arts Camp in Northern Michigan was all kind of part of that fuel. And then three of my siblings also wanted to go into music professionally. The other half wanted to just be normal people and have happy careers and, and make good money and that type of thing. So that's how I got started. And it just stuck with me throughout all of those years. And something you've shared with me for is sort of those early stages and starting young and having support early in your sort of musical education is so critical for people who do want to take it professionally and sort of take it to that next level. And so I'm curious, how did your early and professional training phases of your musical journey go? How did you go about navigating? You had family support, which sounds like a, a big part of knowing what you should be doing, where you should be going, but curious to hear if there are other people and programs that were involved in kind of helping you level up the way that you were thinking about music. Sure. So, I mean, I think one of the most important things is we talk about family supporting 
my musical involvement, I think one of the most important things is that, you know, my folks really valued becoming really proficient at one thing. And that was really popular in my house growing up. It wasn't, you know, how can you dabble with several different activities? Of course, they wanted all of us to find what we were passionate in, but they also knew firsthand how important music and the arts was for all of our development. So I think, you know, that played a, a really big part, of course, just having the family that I that I have. And then, of course, my parents, their background in music. But it was really through, you know, programs like the Atlanta Symphony or Orchestra's Talent Development Program that was really kind of an equity-based music education approach that also understood that families like myself had challenges that made advancing to the next levels more difficult. The quality of instruments that you have to buy moving forward, the amount of training from throughout the school year every single week to, I mean, very expensive programs in, in the summer. You know, those were, that's also, you know, a level of training that you might not do with a lot of other pursuits, because if you haven't really figured out that music piece, even before you go to college, it's not like you wait until your second year of college and say, hey, I want to be a concert pianist. I want to be a professional trumpet player. You know, by that time, not to say it's too late, it's just you have others that have already started 15 years before you. So, you know, just understanding all of that. And then I would probably say the last thing is just information, knowing where to go for training, what should somebody really be focused on? Kind of what's that insider knowledge of, you know, if you want to get into some of the top music conservatories at the college level, what do you have to have prepared? How are the people on the other side, the judges, what are they looking for? What are they listening for? And then, you know, of course, you train accordingly. So it was uh, a nice journey. I don't think I would ever want to repeat it um, just because while everybody else was being a normal high school, middle school, high school kid, you know, I was pretty focused on my studies and I'm glad I did that. Now thinking about where I am in life and the, you know, experiences that I had. So anyway, I mean, just, you know, again, navigating those early years, it was, again, a lot of hard work, a lot of time in the practice room and just trying to figure out how to make, you know, my next step. Yeah. One of the things that I was struck with sort of as you were describing the early stages of your journey is particularly like the range within your own siblings saying about half of you knew that this is what you wanted to do. And the other half, as you put it, were normal and wanted regular careers that paid you money and didn't take over your your childhood. And I'm struck by the parallels between sort of what I imagine young people experience. They go to their parents saying, I want to be a, a professional trumpeter. Although, of course, it's a little different in your house because your parents understood what that meant. But for a lot of folks who might go to their family and say, I want this is what I want to do with my life is just dedicate it to music and the parallels a little bit with, you know, this is different, certainly, but sort of just reminds me of how I felt when I told my parents I was going to quit my corporate job and take a risk and start a nonprofit, right? And they were just sort of like, why? Like, what are you talking about? That's that's not, you know, a stable thing. That's not the norm. You know, people are going to not understand. And so curious what advice you would give specifically to people who are going to their families wanting to take unusual career path, particularly folks who are really young and feel that conviction early. What would you tell them? I mean, most likely, I think understanding one's values is very important. And a lot of, you know, a lot of nonprofit work is kind of values driven. And then I think kind of long term happiness in it is, you know, really staying aligned with those values. I would also say that it's a perfect time. I mean, I 
the way I looked at my life was after going through college, I knew that I wanted to spend my time helping other people through music. That's how I felt that I could really make a difference more than if I was playing concerts and sitting on the back row of an orchestra somewhere. And I was 22 and I was thinking I probably have 40 to 45 years of my professional life in front of me. I happened to be in a situation where I felt that if I tried this nonprofit thing out for a good two years, you know, two or three years, really give it a shot, meaning really put my time and energy into it. Um, Very similar to how I put my time and energy into my, you know, my trumpet studies when I was 15 and I got really, really serious and I started preparing for college auditions. I knew that I wasn't going to be homeless. You know, I also was aware that I wasn't going to make a lot of money to get started. But I kind of figured if it didn't work out, this was only going to be two or three years of like 45 years of my professional life. Like the world's not going to end. Let me try this thing. And just like I'm very happy, I tried the music thing. And again, I wasn't a sophomore in college saying, oh, I wish I would have just given it a shot to just see what would happen. I also think that there's, you know, a, a lot of other things to go along with it. And really knowing that there are so many many ways to make a difference. You know, for me, it was just, it was kind of a no brainer that that's where I would be happy trying to pursue some type of change and impact uh, within young people. And then what really motivated me was coming up with a completely different model for, you know, youth arts education could look like in some of the most challenging, you know, neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And how could that be modeled to different communities around the country? So when I look back at my training through the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra program I was telling you about, or my training at the Curtis Institute of Music, which is tuition free for every student that gets in, I knew that there were resources out there to create a tuition-free program. And I knew that there were kids and families just like mine and myself that would be interested in really dedicating themselves to learning music every single day after school. So I was just really convinced from my life experiences, the need that's out there in communities that we could find people. And I, I love this puzzle of how do I find all of these stakeholders, you know, principals that need quality programming for their students, families that are really looking for something worthwhile for their kid to be involved with. Kids are curious about the arts and about music. You know, donors want to give their money to something that has impact. My friends, other musicians, they want to teach and mentor young people. You know, there are other organizations throughout the city that that, that are cultural organizations, educational ones. They also want to connect to the types of neighborhoods that we work in. So I just kind of look at it like all of these stakeholders kind of want the same thing. Let's go and, you know, have a cast a vision for something that can bring all these people together. And then you work like crazy to get them all to commit to doing something. And I, I just really enjoy putting together those puzzle pieces. And then I get to enjoy every two months or so our kids coming together, making great music. And it's very, very tangible what they're doing because all of these stakeholders are coming together around one common vision and mission. Yeah, people can't necessarily see your face right now, but you are smiling from ear to ear. And I think, you know, I'm sure you have to give your pitch of what Play on Philly does constantly. And but I I feel like very similarly to how I feel every time I have to give my pitch of what second day is, I'm always excited about it and feel very a deep sense of conviction with it. And it is fun thinking of how all these pieces fit together. So I think that the passion is 
is very clear that that you have. And I think for people who are listening, who want to pursue something that might feel outside of the norm, follow that gut passion. I think that that is really powerful. And I think the other thing you said, which is something I remind people constantly, so it's good to hear someone else say it is, if you want to try something, it's two years, it's three years, you are going to have many careers, many chapters of your of careers in your life, and you might as well give it a shot. And that last piece, I think, which is important too, is that practical, like have a plan, know that you have some sort of foundation or some sort of backup plan, or maybe that you know you're not going to just end up homeless because you take a certain path, but have have something that you can sort of point to and, and create a, a loose kind of strategy for yourself. I think that also helps if you are younger and try to communicate this to family members or, or older mentors in your life who are trying to understand why you might be taking a path. I found that having some sort of plan in front of me and saying, I'm going to try this for two years and then this is what I'll do afterwards helped me navigate those conversations when I was changing my, my directions towards second day. So all of that deeply resonates. And I think a lot of that clearly also draws, as you said, on your journey with being being a musician and the discipline and the passion that goes into that. Are there other things that really prepared you for nonprofit leadership that came out of being a professional musician? So I think about a couple of things. I mean, one is, you know, passion and talent is just not enough to be successful in this space. Just like I know a lot of passionate and a lot of talented musicians, I think that there is a kind of a bigger package that one, you know, has to have. So I like to think of things like, you know, practice makes perfect. And before I did play on Philly, I did so many other projects and collaborations that really gave me a lot of experience. Running a, a summer camp in Reading, Pennsylvania and putting together my first board. I remember sitting down in the corporate offices of the Boscoff's department store, competitors of Walmart, kind of in central Pennsylvania or so. And I remember going in with my pitch to try to ask for $1,000, which is fundamentally no different than the pitches that I make for 100000 or even a million dollars. I even think about the relationships and network that have been developed over the years and how you meet all sorts of people that you might not even know what role they will play in your personal or professional life. And, you know, for such a, a project like this, that means so much to me um, on a personal level. There's so much overlap between the people in my life that I love, that I get a lot of energy from, that are also very helpful in my professional pursuits. So I've really thought a lot about what does it mean to not only establish connections with people, but then develop those connections into relationships over time? And how do I invite people in, especially when they are ready to engage in whatever I might need next? And then I would say that there's a lot of things from you know psychological and emotional and mental type preparation that it takes to be a musician that has also helped me navigate some of the obstacles you know, in my professional life today. I think about how one handles rejection. I remember how devastated I was in the, you know, sixth grade not to get into one of the state ensembles. I thought like the whole world was over. And I'm glad that I learned from those early ages that it's not. I'm told no all the time for funding requests, all the time. But enough people say yes to help us kind of build to that next step. So then we're a little bit more attractive to other funders later on. You know, emotionally, this can be really hard work, especially when you see the lives of young people that can be changed, that are being changed, and knowing that these are the types of experiences that can help these young people live a very happy and fulfilled life. You know, there's a lot of pressure. And, you know, there's uh, a lot of times where I've had to, you know, learn to kind of keep that in check and not get 
too involved. If not, I know that I could probably easily burn myself out. And then I would say there's there's this mental preparation as well, knowing that we're running a marathon with this work. How do you keep the energy up, sustain yourself over a long period of time, knowing that it takes time, not only for the kids to learn music and then be able to benefit from it, but also from a standpoint of leadership, you know, kind of a development of, of our organization and program, the people that are part of it, all of that. I love that because one of the things that I was thinking about as you were speaking as well is the power of when you do follow those passions and the things that you are excited about and that align with your values. So for you, it was being a professional musician for so long and connecting with the community of people who share those values. Now that you are in this next stage of your career um, in the arts, those community members kind of helping carry you through that and being supportive and being a part of that journey with you. I think that is the other side of also following the things that you care about is you're going to meet people along the way who share those sort of values as well and want to see you succeed and are going to be your support system as you as you progress. And so that was just something I was thinking a lot about as you as you spoke, because that's certainly something I feel in my nonprofit journey. Talking to folks all day long is getting to do this work means getting to talk to people who share that same North Star with you, which is really, really energizing too. So, and for you, I think it sounds like, you know, you've, you've touched on this and you've shared, but this mission is deeply personal to you. You had access to some really, really, you know, life-changing programs when you were starting out your journey. So what were some of the things that really inspired you to start Play on Philly? Yeah, uh, two main things. I mean, one was seeing the inequalities in Philadelphia between what artistic resources are made available to young people because people are willing to pay a premium to have their kid learn to play piano. If you know that you can make literally $100 per hour in your living room teaching piano lessons, why would you ever want to discount these services to a family that might only be able to pay $15 that you then have to get in your car, go across town to work with them? So you know, there are some of those, you know, really big challenges and the, the types of resources that it takes to help young people have a really meaningful experience in music. And then the second thing was learning about the social development and music education program of Venezuela called El Sistema. And their late leader won the TED Prize in uh, 2009, the year I was graduating from college, and just hearing his story about how he specifically has been using at that time for 35 years, using music education to you know benefit the lives of hundreds of thousands of kids throughout Venezuela. That was very compelling. And then to hear one of their graduates, Gustavo Dudamel, become the music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the age of 27. So for me, it had both uh, appeals of you know, very, very wide appeal for hundreds of thousands of young people, but then also a lot of focus knowing that their graduates were being trained so well that they were literally being positioned into the best jobs around the world. So, I mean, those two things together, finding a very large scale equity-based music education approach is really what inspired me to say, hey, I think that we can do something similar in Philadelphia with all the resources that we have. So since you know, 2009 have been planning, thinking, and then finally taking the plunge. And, you know, instead of a one or two week music program, it was how can we create a 40 to 45 week a year program, uh, which seemed very, very overwhelming at the time. But I think having and really casting that vision is what helped people come together and say that, you know, yeah, this guy is crazy, but let's at least, you know, help drive the crazy bus. <laughs> yeah, that resonates too. I 
this is more of a question out of curiosity for me as a fellow nonprofit leader. Um, I'm curious what you have found really resonates with particularly funders and donors about the work that you do. I think one of the the things that I've seen, and I, I obviously operate in a totally different realm of the nonprofit space, but there is a lot of discussion around the urgency of making sure people have access to housing, the urgency of making sure people have access to education and quality healthcare. And, you know, world is in a bit of a crisis mode, as we all know. So I'm curious, how do you speak to the importance of your program or what resonates about investing and in continuing to invest in the arts in this moment, um, particularly just in the community of Philadelphia, I'll say? Oh, look, there are a lot of messages out there. And the pandemic taught us very, very quickly that, you know, people were concerned about folks just being able to eat the amount of money that went into food banks. And I think it's really important to understand that there's also a group of people who really believe that young people from you know, a standpoint of being able to express themselves, being able to stay connected with their friends, being able to do activities together. They fundamentally believe that music is an important way for these young people to do this. And I think one of the tricks is, is that well, one of the best things to understand is that we will never have the marketing budget of Nike ever. And to think that somehow we're going to convince all these people, especially those that are ready to give all their money to the local food banks. And honestly, only help the food banks for maybe a year or two and then move on with their lives, that it's how to, you know, find and develop those relationships with people who really, really care about what you do. And they're in alignment with that. And even throughout something like the pandemic of using that time to keep building relationship, um, you know, with those people, make sure that they understand what you're trying to do, because we can manage those relationships that we have, the 700 or so donors that support us every year. And you know, the dozens of others that are really, really making big investment in, in our program. So I would just say that a lot of focus is important and, you know, understanding who, you know, your stakeholders are, what personas that they they have. And, you know, again, like I mentioned earlier, just I'm making this sound overly simple, but I just think focus is important. And then the last thing that I will say is just, you know, understanding what's the compelling problem at the end of the day. And I fundamentally believe the biggest problem facing our kids, it's not that they don't have music education or arts education. And especially during a pandemic, good luck trying to tell people that what kids really need during a global pandemic are trumpet and violin lessons. But I think what is important to understand is that we believe that our young people need to develop the types of behaviors and build the types of skills that help them deal with every curveball, like a pandemic, that is thrown into their life. And that music education is an important piece in helping them develop those behaviors and skills. So even through a pandemic, we can make a compelling case to say, we need to continue, we need to be supported so that our young people, even virtually, can still develop these skills that they need later on in life. And that's where I think a good number of nonprofits, they don't end up being that focus and consistency so that no matter what's happening in society around it, that they remain, the nonprofit remains relevant and able to impact the lives of the people that they, you know, say that they're uh, working with. Yeah. I think that, that, that conviction piece, right. That that's what comes into this. And I also got very similar advice once when we were starting our nonprofit journey, which is if you have to convince someone that this is a problem or this is a problem worth addressing, you've already lost them. You can't convince everybody or bring 
bring everybody on board and that's okay. And I think that's to your earlier point, rejection and knowing not everybody's going to understand your vision. That's okay. Part of the job, whether you're doing a for-profit or non-profit or whatever kind of organization you're building is knowing not everybody's going to be on board and you, that's okay. That's normal. You don't need to bring all those people on board with you. It's really about finding those yeses in a, in a sea of no's. It's definitely been our experience too. And one of the other things that struck me as you were speaking, particularly like this point of the biggest challenge facing young people is creating more spaces for them to develop those life skills and be able to navigate through an increasingly chaotic world. And music obviously creates such a sense of consistency, discipline, a way to express yourself in a healthy, beautiful way. And so clearly your personal journey through classical music has shaped the way that you have addressed this new chapter of building play on Philly. So I'm curious if you could speak to a little bit of how those values have kind of embedded themselves in the way you've actually set up your organization, the way you invest in your people that participate and help you run play on Philly. So I would I would say that I mean my my personal my personal values have just been ingrained in shaping the mission and the vision and the values and also the activities of the organization. So when I think about our mission of what I mentioned of how do we provide this transformative music education experience that develops behaviors and skills, you know, again, that goes back to what I know that I learned starting at the age of eight by playing music, playing music with my family, with peers, the dedication, the hard work, the discipline, all of that stuff. So again, knowing that I would feel much more enthusiastic about furthering a mission that also has a very close personal tie to myself. I think about our vision of a city where, you know, children can aspire to, to achieve success, you know, realize their potential for growth and are instruments for change in society. You know, again, it goes back to my own experiences and, and just fundamentally believing that these kids can be awesome people later on. This approach that we have will help them get there. I think when one doesn't fundamentally respect, when they don't fundamentally respect the communities that they're serving, I think it's hard to cast a vision for what that community could be. And then I think, you know, our values, uh, things around equity, which we've already talked about in this. Um, how do we make sure as many people are included, that there's passion and excellence that I was telling you about, that, you know, we're making commitments, we're holding ourselves accountable, and we're really treating ourselves as a member of this community, not one that's trying to change it or shape it or any of that. We're just another part, another partner with our parents and our families and principals and so forth, all the people, the stakeholders that I mentioned before. I would just say that, you know, these types of values, I mean, just shape how we run the entire organization. Everybody needs to be excellent. Everyone needs to be held accountable. Our parents need to be held accountable. If the kids don't show up for an important concert, just like my staff member needs to be held accountable if they aren't showing up. Board members, if they're not showing up for meetings, I need everyone to be excellent. We talk about the kids pursuing musical excellence. Well, we need to have excellence in the office and the way that we conduct ourselves, our ethical behavior, the way that we respect one another. And I just, I think it's really, really important. We treat our employees with as much respect. We're asking them to put in a lot of time and effort. We pay people well. Uh, we believe in people growing. I'm excited as much as I'm sad to see someone move on, but I'm excited to see that their professional experience at Play on Philly helped to prepare them for, you know, a, a, and be very competitive.
competitive for another job in the marketplace. So, you know, those are those are all things that, you know, we try to stay very, very focused on knowing that our organization is a collection of people and individuals all working together. And if we lose sight of that, then I think it's just really easy for everything to fall apart, to get much harder, understand, you know, why aren't we making the types of impact on young people? And if you're going to do all this stuff, I just say, do it well. Yeah, no. And I think respecting your community, I just want to like triple underline that, right? I think that's one of the things when I meet new organizations or I talk to different leaders and who work in this impact space, that's one of the things that I feel like I take such a keen eye to. And I would encourage people who are trying to find their next organization they might want to participate in or even build themselves maybe one day is thinking about how do you keep that at the core of the way that you build your programming, the way that you build your messaging, the way that you build your North Star and your value systems and how you treat your your team that's helping you bring all of that to life. I think that is probably one of the, as I'm thinking a lot, a little bit about this, right? There's been a longstanding challenge in the nonprofit space of not treating your staff well and not giving them that respect or consideration of how much time and effort and intelligence and energy they're putting towards this work. And I do think that it is not a stretch to say that organizations that have done that in the past might have also somewhere along the way lost respect for the communities that they're serving because they have lost respect for their teams. And that's just my editorialization of what I have seen. And I think it's 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 an interesting thing for people to, to take note of both in themselves and when they're looking at other organizations that they want to participate in. And it's important to kind of take that critical eye. Because as you say, once you lose that core value, then the entire thing can kind of fall apart and you can be harmful in communities rather than being supportive in communities. So I don't know if that resonates with you, but that's just something that I'm thinking about as you're as you're speaking to. Yeah, more specifically, I I really hate how poorly we pay people in the nonprofit sector. I don't subscribe to that. I'd rather have 50 less kids have my team properly paid. And same thing around supporting uh, the importance of having some type of human resource infrastructure and dedicating time to that throughout the year to help your people grow, create clarity and their their job roles. I mean, be supportive. And sometimes that means being firm and saying no. I love to embrace people's ideas, but we're not changing the mission or vision or focus of the organization because somebody comes in and thinks that we should be doing music in a certain way or we should be offering yoga classes. And I'm not against it. It's just we're not going to use our our time and energy and effort to you know provide uh, certain types of services that really aren't connected to our mission as a as it's stated as a music education experience. So, you know, I just think that there's a lot that leaders of organizations are responsible for. And again, I just think taking care of your people, again, I don't mean just by compensating them well, but, you know, again, creating clarity and creating a safe space for them to be, to grow, to make mistakes and get better. But, you know, hopefully learn from those very quickly. That That's a part of it that I, I feel that we have a little bit more control and it's easy to blame the rest of the world why we don't have more money. But in the things that we do control, things like our time and our energy and effort, that's an area where we don't really look a lot into to say, what can we do that doesn't involve spending any more money? But, you know, what can we do if that even means as a leader of the organization, I'm dedicating my time to learning more about effective human resource management and, you know, how to help our team to grow. Think about how we can create plans in the short term and long term. And I think we all learned this going through the pandemic. How can we step up and really support our teams when the world around us could be different in two weeks, two days, two months, and not really know what we're going through? You know, just imagine if all those things were in place before the pandemic. I think we're all going to be 
much more prepared for the next one. And not necessarily a pandemic, but a major disruption. Yeah, I do think that this has become like a core competency that is more discussed of knowing how to take care of your team and understand what they need and giving them space and then also giving them support. I think that there is, that is one of those few silver linings that have come out of the last two years is I do think that there's a lot more open discussion about the role of leadership in being responsible for that rather than just kind of saying, figure it out. We have an HR team. I'm sure you'll be fine. Right. And I think that that is something that I don't take for granted and I can appreciate has come out of this pandemic experience, but kind of carrying us to the end, I'm curious, we sort of touched on this in the beginning, but specifically for folks who are interested in the intersection of access to art, equity, and, you know, community, what advice do you have for folks who are navigating that space and the things to sort of look out for, or maybe organizations you're excited about in this space? So I would say it's really important for people to understand what they're getting themselves into. You know, I knew that going into one of the top music schools in the country, that there's a lot of politics behind this stuff and to like really understand how people and money and power and influence, how all of that stuff works as well, I think it's uh, really important. I also think the field of nonprofit management is so well researched. There's so many resources out there. You know, people don't have to try to do these things all by themselves. And in making certain decisions within the life cycle of how our organizations will grow, um, you know, again, I think it's just important. If I'm going to open a brewery, I really want to understand not only the business side of doing all this, but I also want to understand how to make good beer and what types of conditions do I need at every step um, of growth for, for the company. The other thing is that I... You know, in networking, I kind of sometimes I, I don't like using that term, but I think it's, you know, an umbrella um, to just talk about how to build and sustain relationships, because I'm also keeping in mind that there's a certain amount of privilege that I have going to a top music school that is free for every student. I mean, they spend 22 million a year. So there are a lot of rich people that I was around that I had direct access to to try to inspire to support my nonprofit. There's a lot of people who do not have access to those types of people. But I still think it is important to build and sustain relationship with people around you and get to know and, you know, use those people to um, get to know what types of rooms to be in. And then I would say, you know, a level of commitment. I mean, one thing that I just don't see enough is people willing to commit the time to do the work. And I even see this with young kids that come to me and say, hey, you know, Mr. Stan, I, I want to go to Juilliard and study music. And I'm like, wonderful. You'll need to practice. You'll need to dedicate probably two to three hours every single day to be that competitive to get into the, that school. And do you really want to commit to that? And, you know, considering homework that you need to do or the phone calls you need to make or the time that you need to spend on Snapchat or whatever kids do these days, uh, TikTok, are you willing to give up some of that? that time and to, you know, commit to the work that needs to be done. And I think it's very similar in the nonprofit space where I knew after graduation, there was no way I was going to sustain freelancing career, a teaching career and start a nonprofit all at the same time. There weren't going to be enough hours in the day. And I thought, oh, yeah, I, I'll get up in the morning. I'll practice for an hour or two. Then I'll, you know, start going through my emails for the day. And I, I mean, maybe there are other people that are that disciplined. I'm not. But, um, you know, I, I just think that, you know, uh, understanding very early on that I was going to have to give up a couple of things and again, commit to the project that I 
want to do. I think it's just another important thing for folks that want to get involved in this work to really think about very carefully. I still play trumpet. I uh, Last night, I was currently traveling in Boston and last night got together and had a great rehearsal with a good pianist friend. It was it was good to play again. It felt really good. I haven't forgotten, you know, after graduating in 2009, I have not forgotten how to play trumpet over the past 13 years and still enjoy it. I just enjoy it and do it much differently than I did those years before. So um, so anyway, I just uh, want to encourage people, just understand what you're getting yourself into, build the relationship now, even when you don't think that, or you don't even have a nonprofit, because those are the types of relationships that are around you right under your nose that will be those those connections that you need to make your first step and steps later on. I love that. Stanford, thank you so much for, for taking the time to share more about your journey. I feel like what I'm taking from this conversation is sort of the power of being at that intersection of like personal passion and conviction and, and discipline and relationships and what kind of magic can come from that. That's something that I'm going to kind of keep thinking about because I feel it's, to your point, so easy to get caught in that grind and that cycle and just trying to keep the machine moving, that staying rooted in those values is so critical to doing the kind of work and making the kind of impact in the communities that we care about. So appreciate you sharing so much with all of us. Thanks for having me. And also thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast by Second Day. Please do rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really big difference to our team. If you have any feedback or ideas for me, you can reach out at mariam at secondday.org. That's M-A-R-I-A-M at secondday, spelled out S-E-C-O-N-D-D-A-Y.org. Music is Blessed Time by Ketza. And this podcast is edited and produced by Maya Volk.